Welcome to Love Extremist Radio. Being a love extremist means committing to and choosing love as joyful activism. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, self-proclaimed love extremist. Love can exist everywhere, and yet, when talking about it, we all seem to define it differently. There are many environments and individuals to whom love seems lost, or was never there to begin with. I want to engage myself, my guests, and you to confront love, get to know it as it appears in many forms, and learn from others who have love stories to share. I'll focus on three frames of love. Self-love, love in partnership, and love in community. My intention is to uncover and share stories that shed light on love in new and often forgotten ways. I am with Richie Reseda, the founder of Question Culture. He's a recording artist, designer, community organizer, and social entrepreneur who was freed from prison in July 2018, just last summer. The anti-patriarchy work he led while incarcerated was chronicled in the CNN documentary, The Feminist on Cell Block Y, which I just watched and highly recommend is a pretty powerful film. He changes California prison policy with the organization he helped co-found in prison called Initiate Justice. So we'll, we'll dig into that and all of it. Uh, but welcome, Richie. Great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. So we met a few weeks ago and uh, bonded over a lot of things. We're both very much interested in patriarchy and how to dismantle that, how art can be a way of liberation and self-expression and a path to love and also social policy and, and justice and how mm-hmm. that all plays a role. So I'm really excited mm-hmm. to have you here today. Would you be willing to share just a little bit of your backstory? Like what's, what's your deal? Sure. Um, my story is I'm from right here in Los Angeles. I'm from part of Los Angeles called the San Fernando Valley. Uh, particularly it's a very, it's like a heavy, heavily Latino neighborhood. Um, I have a black dad and a white Jewish mom. And you rep the valley on your arm. You've got Yes, on the valley. I got 818 all over me. The valley hat is valley. Valley. <laughs> um, so, but I only, I only state those details to say that I grew up with no concept of race, being in a biracial home, um, having cousins that were black, white, Mexican, um, having you know, my quote unquote cousins or my mom's best friend's kids. She was white. Her husband was Mexican. They adopted five black children. Um, so just literally, I did not even understand the concept that two people of one race make a person who also looks like their race. I thought that race was just kind of a random thing. Like that's assigned to you by chance when you're born until I was like eight years old. And I say that to say when I got to middle school, the things that I that I've always been into art and fashion and music, um, I I felt embarrassed for for being into those things when I got to middle school because suddenly I became aware of race and specifically the stereotypes, the hyper masculine stereotypes of what a black man was supposed to be, um, and I learned those stereotypes through the media. I learned those stereotypes through you know, the slightly older kids growing up around me. And I realized that 
being into music and watching America's Next Top Model and drawing dresses and shoes was not good enough. Hmm. Um, and that to really be a quote unquote real man or specifically a real black man, I had to be like these caricatures I seen on TV or on the corners. Um, and that kind of began my journey, my indoctrination into patriarchy and toxic masculinity. Um, I very quickly adapted as people do, especially children. I learned very quickly. My whole wardrobe changed within my first three months of middle school. Wow. Um, by the time I was in seventh grade, I was doing drugs by eighth grade. I was selling drugs, getting arrested, hanging out with gang members. Um, and I mean, long story short, I found myself in prison when I was 19 and, uh, I robbed some stores and was fighting 150 years to life. Wow. And um, by the grace of God, there was, a, there was a moment in my teenage years where I was like in this youth diversion program where they were teaching us to be community organizers, which is where I first learned about concepts around patriarchy and uh, critical race theory and stuff like that. And the, the folks, my mentors from that community from from the organizing community really showed up for me when I was fighting my case, uh, namely my mentor, Patrice Colors, mm -hmm. who helped, you know, she organized a campaign to raise money for my lawyer and that campaign raised $10,000. Wow. And I got a paid lawyer and instead of getting 150 years to life, uh, I got 10 years. I just want to recognize Patrice Colors is one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. And yes. an incredible activist based here in Los Angeles. Yes. Um, and it was, it's kind of funny how that even that happened. You know, when you're in prison, you're so cut off from everything. I didn't know Patrice had anything to do with Black Lives Matter. Right. It wasn't until <laughs> like like a, at least a year in, if not two years in, um, to BLM really becoming a global movement that I knew that I knew the people who were in it and that I knew that, um, you know, when that hashtag, when Patrice uh, and Ali when Alicia and Patrice first started like building out that hashtag, that moment when George Zimmerman was acquitted after murdering Trayvon Martin, Patrice was in a terrible place called Susanville, California, visiting me in prison. Um, she came and saw me wow. Saturday and then he was acquitted that night and we I saw her again Sunday. Crazy. And... So I was kind of there in a way for the beginning of Black Lives Matter movement. I had no idea until later, um, until she was getting ready to release her book, When They Call You a Terrorist. There you go. Um, He's wearing the shirt. So, it, yeah, so that's my story. So I, I, I got trained as an organizer as a kid, but I still, you know, stayed as, as much as I loved and thrived the organizing world. It wasn't enough to stop me from um, pursuing drug addiction and like patriarchy is a way to like truly be a man. So I continued on that path, went to prison and it was in prison where I decided, you know, I know what's right hmm. and this ain't it. Did you feel as though the social pressure that was on you to show up as a man and to commit crime or be involved with in gang culture was that what led you was it a, a, about being accepted 
Like what what was what was it that was missing in your life that made you feel like oh, I got to step into this? Like Oh, absolutely, that's what it was because I I you know, I'm very insecure even now. Um but especially when I was a teenager. So I remember I had a conversation with my friend um who and she knew all of like the gangbanging homies as well. And when I really started, you know, I always was friends with them since we were 12, but when I really started getting into it and changing the way I dressed and like just like dove in it all the way. She was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? I said, I need them to, res I need everybody to respect me as a man. And she said, we all respect you. We love you. You're like the weird homie and you like wear pink skinny jeans. And like we, we, everyone respects you. You're Richie. And I was like, nah, I need them to respect me as a man though. And I remember having that conversation on the bus and just that there is a difference between just being respected as a person and being respected as a man. Um, and the only way that I saw was the acceptable way to be ex accepted as a man was to be violent. And in my culture, gang members, that way of being is like the pinnacle of violent manhood. So who instilled that in you? Do you feel like that came from fellow peers or do you think that came from women in this? Cause it's around puberty, right? It's like kind of around the time when you start to get into women or attracted to the opposite sex or whatever, whoever you choose and notice your sexuality. And I often think a lot of the things we do in our younger years and even in our older are oriented around looking for a mate, whether we're conscious of that or not. But I'm curious what influenced that charge to say, I need to follow this patriarchal lineage. Was it fellow men or was it women who you wanted to attract? Honestly, it was men. Okay. For me, I've never had a hard time connecting with women. Mm -hmm. It's always been more instinctual for me to connect with women. I relate more with women. I, I'm just more excited about feminine things. I would connect with women over the stuff that they liked. You mm -hmm. know, like most of my friends have always been girls. I had like a handful of male friends and they were all gang members. And I felt like I needed to prove myself to them. Mm-hmm. So there, there was like this moment I remember in every time, even before I started full-fledged gangbanging, even when I was still weird or even still organizing, we would be in situations where the gangbang homies would be in some kind of trouble or get into it with some bloods or whatever because they was all crips. So mm -hmm. they would get into some bloods or whatever. And even as a organizer with like a bright yellow t-shirt from the organization that I worked for on and colored skinny jeans and I would run and, and go be in it and I felt like I had to be the first one to be in it hmm. um there was one time where somebody kept someone drove down the blocks and dude was standing out his uh sunroof with a gun dissing a gang that none of us were even from the gang that he was from that, that he was dissing, excuse me. He was dissing some other gang that, that doesn't even hang out over there. None of my homies was from there. But because he did it on their block, they were like, oh, we finna push up on him. Like, you ain't finna just come over here waving a gun around like you hard. But none of us had a gun. This dude's in his 20s. We were, pro we were 15, 16 at the time. And a bunch of the older homies who were in their 20s, 30s, they all kind of fell to the background and went back in the apartment buildings. But me, my scrawny ass with no gun, no nothing, I walk up to him. <laughs> it was that important to me. It was worth literally my whole life to just prove that I'm down, that I'm with, you know, that I'm with it. Um, and I think that the pressure was not just, it wasn't really pressure from my 
peers, because they kind of accepted me as I was. It was like the the general societal pressure. Yeah. Do you feel like you came from a family that like a loving family, like a, a nurturing, loving community? Or was there was there was that something that maybe was less present when you were younger? I feel like my family was as loving as patriarchy allows a family to be. So I did not grow up in a family where my parents were doing drugs and were out the house and I didn't it, it wasn't like that. I grew up in a family a working class family where my when my mom worked, she was a secretary and my dad uh was a courier. He like drove trucks and dropped off mm-hmm. packages and he had two jobs. He also threw the newspaper in the morning. They were both very hard working people. Wow. Um but even within that context, it was still violent in the patriarch in in the patriarchal sense it was still you weren't allowed to have emotions it was mm-hmm. if you had emotions then we would be called like girl nicknames or told to stop whining or you know the kind of boys don't cry way of being not really from my mom but more from my dad right. we were still f- like f- you know physically hit this was in the 90s and the early 2000s um where it was much more acceptable and common especially amongst like working class black families to hit your kids. Yeah. Um, so yes, my parents loved me. They, they were very responsible, but they upheld patriarchal values, which I believe are inherently violent. Mm-hmm. So all this now you've, you had this experience, you've come through quite a journey. You've studied not only before you were incarcerated, but through that entire experience and mm-hmm. after um, you know, you got into leadership positions, which I wanted to get dig into. But what is your informed definition of love as it sits today? So my favorite definition of love that I've heard, I just straight downloaded from Bell Hooks. Yeah, and she downloaded it. I want to say from M. Scott Peck. Yep. She quoted. Yeah, she's quoted M. And Scott Eric Peck from. Yeah, which and and it's love is the the investment of oneself into the spiritual growth of another. Um, <laughs> which I think can also be extended to a thing. It's like the investment, the investment of my spirit into something or someone. Mm. Um, Cause I feel like you can invest yourself into music. You can invest yourself into the movement, whatever, but it's the investment of my spirit into something else. That's like a very straightforward definition of love that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Do you think it can apply to yourself as well? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think we can, we can spiritually invest in ourselves or invest in our own spirit. Yeah. So The Will to Change and All About Love are two incredible books by Bell Hooks that have been huge influences for me as well. I know that they're part of the curriculum that you were working on in prison mm-hmm. um, with, with the community. And I'd like you to speak to that. But um, just want to say if anyone is looking for some good reads on love that offer real clear uh, succinct definitions that can be applicable to your life. Uh, I really recommend reading some bell hooks. And I've ta- I've extrapolated from that that there's kind of three frames with which you can take that definition. You can apply it to the self. You can apply it to partnership love, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of intimacy. And then you can apply it to the world, right? So the mm-hmm. collective. And I see all these three ways of interacting with love, um, whether it be self partnership or, or collective and collective could be community. It could be your passion. It could be the environment, right? There's a lot of ways that we can define that, but 
uh, your family. Uh, but yes, thank you. Um, I think that's a great place to, to, to work from. And um, could you share a little bit about the program that you got involved with in prison? And, and, and yeah. Yeah. Um, when I finally got down to a medium security prison, which took a couple of years, uh, I, I got to be involved in like the self-help community. So high security prisons in the LA County jails do not have self-help groups like that. They don't have anything really going on, but push-ups and politics. You think they could? Sure. And, and to a growing extent they do now because people are pushing on these agencies to include them. But when I was there, they didn't. Um, so when I get to medium security, I, I get to Soledad and, uh, I get invited to some self self-help groups. And the very first one I go to is about how to be a man. Wow. And it just turned out that way. And, they were talking about you shouldn't break the law and you shouldn't be a gang member, but you should run your household and be a real man. Hmm. You should pay for dinner when you take a woman out to dinner. Like they were, it's like these very heteronormative patriarchal ways of like what a real man is. Right Now, most of the dudes in this group, statistically speaking, guessing and trying to remember also, did not grow up with their fathers. Mm-hmm oftentimes grew up in, you know, um, unstable situations. I did not. Right. So I got to live and see this this idea they're fantasizing, this like white fence Amer American patriarchal fantasy that they were teaching us to be. I've seen it and I know it doesn't work. Right. That that it hurts, you know, that 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 quote unquote, that quote unquote love that comes up out of that that patriarchal situation is hurtful it's not it's it's not the answer mm -hmm. so I tried to push back on some of that stuff but obviously it was me versus a room full of people and at the time I'm 21 years old mm -hmm. so you know it was, it was dudes in there who've been in prison longer than that and the staff who were speaking had been working in CDCR longer than that there it was two women um surprised I guess not surprisingly enough but it was two women who were leading the class mm -hmm. who worked there and they were both in their 40s um, so didn't nobody care what I had to say. Hmm. Um, so I decided I was going to do a workshop based on We Real Cool by Bell Hooks. Um, and some of, <clears throat> some of the will to change, but it was mostly based on We Real Cool. So I began that process and I designed a workshop and I had to go to the, the prisoners who ran a group and basically ask them for a time slot. To deliver this and they were always like we want to empower the youngsters give the youngsters an opportunity to speak so i was like look i'm a youngster i want to speak mm -hmm. and uh you know they played me to the left and eventually i finally got this the spot i was supposed to get a 45 minute time slot and by the time they actually let me grab the mic it was 20 minutes left and they stopped me five minutes early hmm. and everybody was laughing and it was just terrible it was just it was humiliating and uh <laughs> um but it was good because after that, I went and I, I talked to my boy Charles, who was also 21, and we had like a class together. And I said, bro, we just got to start our own group. So that's what we did. And we started Success Stories. And Success Stories is about how to let your goals run your life rather than your pride or anything else. And a big part of that conversation is talking about patriarchy explicitly. 
yeah. um, because I felt like we were kidding ourselves to do self-transformation work as men if we weren't going to talk about patriarchy. So a big part of the curriculum was about that, and we used the teachings of bell hooks to do that. So I highly recommend that you all check out The Feminist on Cell Block Y because it illustrates what you did and speaks to uh, success stories in that group. So definitely check out that piece by CNN. Um, where in your experience did you find authentic love in prison? We had to create it. Mm -hmm. the, the first time that I felt authentically loved in prison and that not including by people who weren't in prison, like my wife or my mentor or my friends, but the first time I felt authentically loved in prison was by my celly, mm -hmm. Jazz, David Jazz Brown. He is by, to this day, the most warm-hearted, loving person I've ever met. And, you know, I just came from doing a year in the L.A. County Jail, which is a terrible, terrible, violent place. And then a year at high security prison, which is also a very violent place. Now I get to this medium security prison. I'm 21. I move in with a dude. Who, at the time, Jazz must have been like 57 or something. Wow. He was in prison for 30 years, 30 plus years when I when I moved in. He'd been He's been in prison since 1981. <laughs> and he... I remember one day, um, oh, I moved in September and my birthday's in October. So in October, he gave me a birthday present. Whoa. And it was like wrapped. Wow. And he asked me what's my favorite thing to eat and he made it. And I remember I was very suspicious uh, because I was like, what he, is he going to want something later? Is he trying to lure me into something? Is there, I didn't trust him because I didn't trust anybody. And he, when I, asked, when I told him like, oh, I'll pay, I'll pay you back or whatever. He was like, nah, it's, it's your birthday. You can have it. He literally, he had the like happy birthday letters that people have in their houses yeah. and like hung it in the cell. Wow. I just never experienced anything like this. It was, it was disorienting. I didn't even understand what was happening. Unconditional. Yeah. And then I seen come Thanksgiving, he made a bunch of food and was just giving it away for free. And then come Christmas... He wrapped a bunch of gifts, like literally like 200 gifts. And they were not big things. Some of them were like a box of donuts or like whatever you can get in prison. But he took the time to wrap them with construction paper or whatever he can get his hands on and handed them out to everybody in the building Whoa. with cards and like would make food and hand it out in the building and make little menus with like inspirational messages in them. And he, he was just like, and and still is to this day, he just showed me what it meant to like see people and love people because my understanding was, you know, was the movement. That was the, that's all I knew, you know, and it was about tearing down systems and not really about individual people. Right. And I've never been like a mushy kind of guy. Um, but jazz, he was, he's just so loving in everything he does. When somebody's family member would pass away, he would, like write them a letter and give it to them. Or when people would die in prison, he would like write a card, have us all sign it and like our positive memories of that person and then find out that person's family's address and send it to them. Wow. And just like his whole life was about helping people and at on the like individual level, like investing in people. Um, and that really showed me how love could look. 
mm. in prison or anywhere. And he would say, you know, because at the time he'd been in prison 35 years, whatever. And he would say, you know, we, we, we live here. We get to choose how we live here. We right. get to choose if we enjoy our holidays. We get to we get to choose how how we are here. He's from Michigan. All his family is in Michigan. He had never gotten a visit. Damn. So he was like, we we get to create our families around us, and uh, that impacted me a lot. And once I learned that from Jazz, I worked to build those kind of relationships um, with a lot of people. And by the time I left prison, I had a, a family. Everybody in that in that documentary. And people who weren't in the documentary, we were a real family. Like we ate together, we celebrated holidays together, we held each other accountable, accountable. We pushed each other, you know, to our highest goals. We helped each other with our homework. We cried together. We hugged when we saw each other, and not like bullshit. Excuse, mm-hmm. and not like yeah. man hug where you like pat the back and it's like uncomfortable. Like right. I learned to like hug and enjoy the hug of men. Yep. And and. Yeah, I just there's some of the people who I love most in the world. They're they're just as much in my family as anybody else. And I really learned that from jazz. That's amazing. Do you think all humans are capable of love? Yes. Do you think we are all that that's like the ultimate quest? Like, do you think we're all on that journey? I believe that <laughs> I went through this period in prison where I was I I was debating my best friend Charles. He was very Christian and he was always trying to proselytize me. So we were always debating. That's how we met each other because I was like studying Kabbalah and he was Christian and we were debating. So I had to really figure out what I believed. And after really doing a lot of research and a lot of soul searching and a lot of syllogisms, I I figured that what is right, what we describe to be morally right is actually just what is loving. Mm-hmm. And what we describe to be morally wrong, quote unquote, is actually what is not loving. Mm-hmm. And human being, you know, you you take a baby human, you drop them in the forest, they're not going to make it. It is literally written into our very DNA to need each other, which which I believe has to do with why we crave love, seek love, and like have an inner sense of what is loving and what is not or what is quote unquote right and what is quote unquote wrong because we know our very survival is based on love. So yes, I, I believe we we all desire love, but I also think because we're such like high thinking, complicated beings, we can convolute that and we can spread hate in the, in, in our quest for love. You know, we can hurt each other in the, in our quest for love because we don't even know that that's what we're looking for. Well, that's kind of the next question that, you know, having been through some pretty intense places and connected with some pretty intense individuals, do you think that there are people who are incapable of getting to love in their life or people who, you know, you, you, you meet who are just like walls where like, whoa, like you have so many layers. This is like maybe not even in your lifetime. I can't believe that. I've definitely met people who have so many layers. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. And I would just, you know, the way we would describe those people when we'd be in is we would just say like, oh, that brother's lost or he's, he's in it right now. Right. right. Because we were all in it at some point. Sure. Where we're so far away from that actual love that we're, we're just in that, that negativity, that violence. Um, but I do believe that everybody is capable of it. So what do you think is the most potent way to get someone who's in it? 
out of it and into love, into their hearts. To love them. Simply to show them love. To, 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 to. So what does that mean to you? Like, I think it's going to be act? different for different people in different situations, but to show somebody love mm-hmm. is what it's like. If you've never, it's like if you grow up your whole life drinking Kool-Aid with no sugar <laughs> and then one day somebody put sugar in the Kool-Aid and you're like, how was I ever doing this before? This is so good. I can't go back. Right. But you don't even know you want it until you've had it. Now, I actually think Kool-Aid and sugar are kind of gross, but to make <laughs> it was a good way of illustrating what I mean. When you love on somebody, it, it, they then realize and they feel how good that feels. They then re- they realize they want more and slowly become aware of how they haven't been that way for others. Yeah. That was my experience all throughout going, you know, getting arrested, selling drugs, stealing, going to juvenile hall, going to jail, going to prison. My community never threw me away. They did not enable me, but they never stopped loving me. Mm-hmm. And when I got it, I got it. And they're still, the, the, they're my closest friends to this day. Um, and it's only because of that community that I'm here right now. Because you know what you see in prison, you know who has people loving them and who don't. Yeah. You can see it. Right. Because somebody who doesn't have any real love in their life has nothing to lose. Why wouldn't they raise their hand to get the knife and, and go kill the dude that, you know, their homies feel like needs to get off the yard? Why would it, why would they not do that? They have nothing to lose, but more prison. They're already in prison. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't they continue to get high? That's li- that's the only high they got. They don't have the high of love. Um, but the people who have somebody, the people who are loved on on the regular are the people who are fighting to get out yeah. and the people who are fighting to change the way that they think and the way that they are. Um, it's so obvious. You can see it mm. on people. Um, that's so, incredible. Yeah, I, I think and we need we need to love. To get people to want to love, we need to love them first. What do you think draws people out of love? Like someone, you know, maybe in your situation or in general? Um, I feel like domination... Hold on, let me back up. There are like cheap highs <laughs> yeah, that may seem like they feel better than love. Power trips. Yeah. So it could literally be the cheap high of like meth or it could be like the cheap high of domination. Mm-hmm. And we have a whole culture and society that's built off of seeking the cheap highs. And people believe it. You know, we... I Yeah, I buy into it. I bought into that money, that power, that, you know, the utilization of women as sex objects and party favors were what life was about, that that's what success looked like, that that's what I should look for. And when you go chasing those things, when you get them, it feels good. Mm -hmm. So it only reinforces that that's how we should live. That's what it was like for me. Um, So that draws, that drew me further away from real love was the was the fake love the cheap highs and then and then once you're so far away it's like 
you feel embarrassed or uncomfortable when you're with real love. That's how I felt when Jazz first was loving on me like that. I felt uncomfortable. Right. I remember the first Christmas I was in a cell. I like I I like I like went off on him because he had like hung up Christmas decorations while I was asleep, and I could see he had to reach over me to do so. And I was like, "Don't never reach over me while I'm asleep." Like, just like in a very prison way. Like, and I seen he he didn't like roar up back at me he was just like okay and I can see he was very sad and very hurt because he like woke up in the middle of the night wanted to be this whole thing and I wake up instead angry right and but that's because I was uncomfortable with the real thing right wow so so we we pull ourselves into these kind of consumer culture we pull ourselves into this this, this idea of comparison, right, of, um, you know, the, the social norms and that can make us uncomfortable with the authentic, with, with the true connection. One thing that I, that I think you, you mentioned that I've been struggling with a lot is the word power because I think power often is kind of alludes to hierarchy and alludes to oppression and alludes to control. And yet there's something about self-love and personal power that, perhaps has merit in our culture, especially when we can become, come into a place of self-love where we acknowledge that we are sources of light for our communities, for others, right? And if we can bring love, just like Jazz did to you, if we can be that actor, there is power in that. And there's power in Jazz not roaring back up at you when you yelled at him. That was extremely powerful and yet might not be perceived by that in a patriarchal sense. But... I just want to say I've been grappling with it because people, you know, I, I, I think there's shame to me around power because I get confused and I think, oh, power means I'm the CEO, I'm the boss, I'm making the big billions, whatever, right? Whereas actually to be in one's power is just to be comfortable, is just to be able to be light, to be able to bring love to the situation, whatever that is, and to show up full and... I think that the just the language there, I struggle with that. But curious to hear your thought, like if how you differentiate those things. I think there's what I hear you saying is that the word power is so such a blanket statement that it could be used to describe domination, but it could also be used to describe agency. Yes. And yeah, it can get confusing because both of those are, are forms of power. Um, but that's. I would I kind of stay away from the word power because it's so vague. Um, but just to clarify a little bit more, like I just was having a conversation with Tia Oso. I don't know if you know Tia at Revolve Impact. Mm-hmm. And she's dope. And we were talking about mm-hmm. call out culture. Right. And this is a time, especially when we talk about patriarchy, where there's a lot of calling out taking place. Right. Bad behavior is on the chopping block and. We, we were talking about where is the love and call out culture? Because it really feels a little bit like a power trip often where, you know, someone is being brought to light and whatever power they may have had is being attacked. And oftentimes that comes with consequences and they might lose their stature, their business might lose their funding, whatever it might be. Right. And it could destroy someone in a professional sense or, or their reputation or whatever it might be. And yet there is still love and agency in that act, especially when a woman perhaps calls out a man for disrespecting her and violating her sexually, right? And, and, and so 
there's a real interesting kind of discomfort in the use of power and how that can destroy folk. And sometimes it doesn't teach the lesson to that mm-hmm. other individual. Sometimes the less like, you know, is Louis CK, has he come out of that situation like any different, right? Like Kevin Hart is the talk of the town. R. Kelly, right? Like these individuals who are, who are seeing being called out right now in this moment. I don't know if they're going to learn, but certainly there's a lot of other men that are watching and are listening and they're probably feeling maybe shameful or yeah. like, whoa, I better slow my roll or watch what I do and watch what I say. And does that then take agency away in some ways? So the, so there's layers to this, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like there's, <laughs> there's, I feel like, I, one, I don't think that it's very common that um, men who are dedicated to patriarchy see these other men losing stature or official power or whatever. I don't think men who are still committed to patriarchy are seeing this call-out culture and being like, oh, I better get my act right. Mm. They're probably saying, man, these women are out here lying. What has happened to society? Uh, our president was quoted as saying, it's a dangerous time to be a young man in America. Right. Like the, if, when, you're contri- when you're committed to that type of life, you're not going to be uncommitted out of fear of consequences. Patriarchy is all about running up to the consequences and showing I'm a bigger, badder man than you consequences. I mean, in the 50s, they were playing chicken and driving up to cliffs, you know? Yeah, right. in, in, in my generation, it's we're going to go shoot at these dudes because they're from across the street. Right. It, but it's like we're playing with our whole lives. So, no, the consequences aren't scaring anybody. Like you you listen to what Donald Trump or like uh, R. Kelly or what these men say about how they get called out. And it's like they just come back even harder and even more gross. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say this. Cancel culture. Is problematic. Cancel culture. Cancel culture, this idea that you did something problematic, so now you're canceled, is not helpful. Right. It is a, it's a mutant that has come up out of boycotting, mm-hmm. which is helpful. The whole purpose of boycotting is to get the harm doer to come to the table. It's a nonviolent form right. of protest. LA the, teachers are on strike right now. Right, exactly, because LAUSD is, wants to sit on their $2 billion and criminalized students and not have any nurses. So first the teachers say, hey, we want to talk about this. LAUSD says, take a hike. They say, hey, we really want to talk about this. They say, take a hike. They say, okay, we're not going to go to work. Now we'll see. Now you can call me when you're ready to talk. That's the purpose of boycott. So yes, we should. I'm not going to listen to R. Kelly's music. I'm, I understand why people do it, but it's just, it's, I guess when I say there's layers to it, it's important that we're conscious of what we're doing. I'm divesting from R. Kelly's music because R. Kelly is living out in harmful ways. And I'm not going to give my okay to that or support that by giving him a stream and giving him or a concert ticket or giving him income or or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's very different than I'm mad at you now you're canceled. That's prison. Right. You know what I mean? I have been canceled. I am formally canceled person. And it was not helpful. When the state of California said, yeah, we'll see you in 10 years. I don't care what you do between now and then or if you live or die. That was not helpful. The reason why I had any shred of success is because of the people who didn't cancel me. Mm-hmm. Because of the people who continued to invest in me and, and love on me. So I'm not saying people should 
continue to listen to the music of or, or enjoy the entertainment of or shop at stores that are ran by people who are harming people. No, we shouldn't. But let's just make sure we're boycotting and not canceling. The goal of a boycott is to get you to the table, is to get the, the behavior to stop, is to get you to be accountable. The goal of canceling is to look woke on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it's posturing. That's another power struggle, right? It's like that's a power play that doesn't necessarily progress our society is what you're saying. Yeah. And and I also I do I want to say too, like when specifically when women are calling out men or saying like you should lose your job for being that way. That uh, that's not what I'm criticizing at all. Mm-hmm. I I think that's often that's those are moves that are made out of safety so that folks are being valued. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if somebody is using their power as a CNO, CEO or an executive director or whatever to abuse people, um, that's not okay, and they should be removed from that place of power. But the ultimate goal is that they stop doing that, mm-hmm. rather than revenge. Um, and I can understand why oppressed people, I'm, I'm never one to tell somebody who's oppressed in a way that I'm not how they should deal with it. I, I guess I'm speaking more to us as a culture right? and saying um, that revenge is not the answer. Revenge is just more violence. It's a cycle. It's a cycle of violence. So how do we address power in a post-patriarchal world? I, I think... What helps me is to understand power simply as capability. Okay. And if we're seeking capability rather than domination, then we're on the same team. Right. So it's much more oriented around collaboration and empowerment. Yeah. Than rather it is, than than it is around domination and control. Right. So we talk at Initiate Justice, we talk about building power of people who are impacted by incarceration. That means teaching someone who's in prison how the legislative cycle works now they're empowered with that information and they can do something with it right can you speak a bit about initiate justice and what what you guys do um so initiate justice uh which was founded by my wife taina vargas edmund and co-founded by me in that i helped design the program and specifically design what the organizing looks like in prison is a policy organization that changes prison policy in California that's all led by people who are in prison, people who used to be in prison, or people who's got loved ones in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have worked on a bunch of laws over the course of the last two years since we started, and one of them is the reason why I'm home right now. Uh, We did a lot of work around the implementation of Prop 57, and, you know, had Prop 57 not been implemented... Um, close to the to the way that we demanded it might be with our, our talking points that we sourced from 2,000 incarcerated people in a survey, I wasn't supposed to go home until March 30th, 2020. And instead wow. I went home July 16th, 2018. Amazing. And so what were some of the principles of, or the talking points of Prop 57 that... So what we did, them? Prop 57 did a bunch of things, but one of the things it did... Um, well, let me back up. Let me back up. After we started Success Stories, Charles and I, yeah, we were focusing on young men 18 to 35 to get them to go to this group. We A lot of people that age didn't want to show up. There was no incentive to do so. Mm-hmm. Most of the people went to self-help groups were people with a life in prison who had to go to a parole board one day and say, hey, look, I did all these groups. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So in order to incentivize people to go to the groups and to decarcerate this mass incarcerated state of California, uh, me, Charles, and Taina kind of started working together on some legislation to make it so that people could earn time off of their prison sentences by going to rehabilitative programs. Wow. Charles and I did the research in the prison law library. We sent it to Taina. She formatted it into a bill idea and she got it introduced into the state legislature. It's incredible. Yeah. She's her, her policy mind is like nothing I've ever seen in my life. And she got it introduced and the governor hit up the author and said, look, this is a great idea. Drop the bill. I can do it better and stronger with the ballot initiative. So, you know, this legislator goes with it and we were all upset. We thought the governor was just trying to stop us, but lo and behold, later that year, here comes the public safety and rehabilitation act, which grew on to be prop 57, which borrowed some of that language. And we pushed like hell to get it passed. And then, but because it gave so much power to CDCR on how to implement it, we knew because I was in prison, because Charles was in prison, because our whole team was in prison or in visiting people in prison, we knew that we have to stay on CDCR. So Taina came what? with the the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitations, the prison system in California. Right. Okay. They had all the power on how to implement it. So Taina said, let's do a survey of incarcerated people and how they think it should be implemented. So she drew up a survey, put it online. It went like mini viral and people were sending it to their loved ones in prisons all over the state. And we surveyed 2,500 incarcerated people and aggregated the data. And it came down to five talking points of what we feel like Prop 57 should be. And the talking points and the sourcing of the talking points coming from the people who know the most and who are the most affected by it caught wave within like the, the statewide movement to end mass incarceration in California. And, you know, something like 160 organizations got behind them. And we got collectively got 11,000 letters up to CDCR supporting our talking points. And we got 300 people to show up to the public hearing in Sacramento on a Tuesday at CDCR headquarters around these talking points. And that's, you know, kind of how our not only Prop 57 got to be what it was and the reason why I'm sitting here right now, but it also began what the organization that's now called Initiate Justice. And what's the website, just so people can check it out? Initiatejustice.org. Dope. Thank you. That's incredible work. Um, and I've had the privilege of meeting Richie's wife, Taina, and, and, and talking to her about it, and it's amazing. So definitely check out initiatejustice.org. I, I, for all of us who are listening, there's a real interest in, and I consider myself to be one of these, activism for love, being mm-hmm. a love activist. And I talk about the simple things we can do, sharing a smile, giving someone a real hug, hearing them out, learning how to actively listen and give someone attention with intention. Uh, but I'm curious to hear from you. What are some what are some practical methods that people can become activists for love in their communities? What has worked for me is asking myself when making decisions, is this the most loving thing to do? Mm. Is that the most loving thing to do? And I mean from the most, the big decisions like, what am I going to give my time towards? Is it going to go to initiate justice, success stories, music? I love all these things. But what is the most loving thing to do, like for the world? Right. And letting that guide me to the small decisions. Like, dang, I'm in a hurry. Should I cut this person off right now? Mm-hmm. Like, 
and letting it, I, once I built the habit of having that a question that I ask myself all the time, that kind of guides me as a as a love activist to make sure that love is making my decisions for me. Yeah. So your recommendation is just check in, basically with your heart, and say like, how does this feel? Yeah. How does this put yourself forward and say, does this feel like the right thing? So. And to ask others. You yeah. Know, yeah. My, I mean, you saying that makes me want, I, I, I need your feedback on some stuff. So we'll follow up <laughs> after this. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. We need, I need some reflections. Um, so how do we support your work? How, how, how do we find you and support you uh, in what you're doing? So all of my, I, I channel all my work through my social impact record label, Question Culture. Um, anybody could check out what we're doing at questionculture.com. Uh, we have we do music. We're working on films. We're we're in the early stages of a documentary about rape culture and street harassment. Um, we're working on the albums of two awesome artists. One is JJ eighty eight. He's still in prison. We're gonna market him right there from where he is. He was sentenced to forty years to life when he was fifteen. Wow. Um, he's actually the person who asks me all the time. Is it, Richie? Is that the loving thing to do? I love him <laughs> for that. He holds me very accountable in that way. Um, and Indigo, who is a just a light of a human being um, from New Jersey. And we just, we just make art that challenges patriarchal culture and pushes love in a very hip hop millennial way. That's amazing. So maybe to follow up on the question, how can we be activists for love? How do you see the most effective way of being an activist to challenge patriarchal culture? I think first understanding that there's no comfortable way to do it. Yeah. Patriarchy is the religion of our culture. So there's no comfortable way to push back against it. First, the first thing that you have to do is be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And when the homie is using the B word left and right or saying, man, all these women is lying, man, Bill Cosby ain't did none of that. Being willing to be uncomfortable and be like, nah, bro, <laughs> like right. that ain't it. Yeah. Um, And being, being willing to, check yourself. I have to be willing to check myself as well. Um, but yeah, step one to being a, an activist for love in a patriarchal culture when patriarchy is like the opposite of love is being com getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Can I get comfortable in the <laughs> uncomfortable? Hey. Can I be all okay every day? Yeah, uh, I feel that I, I really do. And this is it's, this does feel like a time of discomfort. It's almost like we're ripping off the Band-Aid. And this is a period of time when as it feels in certain circles like patriarchy is in its death throes and others, it's still very vibrant and alive. Um, but as this starts to unfold, there's going to be a lot of discomfort and to me, the area where I feel a need to continue to be in integrity is around agency and around focusing on what the loving thing to do is in mm -hmm. this male white body. Um, and I, I, you know, you are inspiring me in that, you know, and I really appreciate you putting language to that because that's something that I think there's also a lot of shame, you know, when we look at what's going on just being in a man's body or growing up in this time of transition, you know, you and I both lived in a time 
when objectification was the norm and that was actually status, right? Like you being able to talk about your conquest was in many ways something that people looked up to, mm -hmm. especially your male peers, right? Mm -hmm. and I imagine that's still the case. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, in many, in many places. And so to reconcile that and move beyond it is, is work. Yeah. For me, I just, I just got to be honest. I still do that in my mind. You know, mm -hmm. I, I still think about myself in that way or get excited when I get some kind of social cue from a woman like, oh, I could hit yeah. like, oh, I, I could hit. I could tell like and then having to be on myself like, bro, what? Like, was that is that what you're feeling good about? Is that what you're giggly about right now? That like j just recognizing that like trying to, to collect women is not just on my belt is something that I still think to myself and I have to be honest with to other people because then it's less powerful and then I can kind of next time it happens I can laugh and be like yeah bro we're not doing that yeah and also it's both men and women that perpetuate certain elements of this as well you know like I th I've sure. definitely been in partnerships and in relation with women who have expected of me a certain mm, traditional patriarchal spirit sure. that I don't always feel comfortable with and I then get in a comparison mode where it's like, well, you know, if you want to be with Rocky, he's over there. You know, mm -hmm. like, look at me. I'm always going to be 5'7 and like <laughs> in this body, you know, so like it's not going to change. But yeah, it's uh, it's definitely an interesting thing to, to investigate. Um, all right. So find Richie at Question Culture and initiatejustice.org. That's the those are the main spots. He's all over L.A., um, I want to do work with you, so I hope we can continue this conversation and host gatherings and conversations around patriarchy and and yes. gender and and really bring a diverse group of voices together to to confront these issues and and call out culture and all that because there's so much there. Um, what's your favorite love song? <laughs> um, I've been thinking about this so much. What my favorite love song is? It doesn't have to be forever. It could just be like. In this moment. My favorite love song right now in this moment, yeah. straight up, is Love by SZA and Travis Scott. Dude. I just right. love how it feels. Yeah. I I love SZA. Yes. Same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. She's yeah. a Scorpio too, so. She's. we. Do, I feel like. L, yeah. LA fam, right? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. yeah. That's awesome. All right. Well, we'll play that on the way out. I want to thank you, Richie Reseda, for being here today and having this conversation on Love Extremist Radio. And uh, thank you all for listening and tuning in. And I hope you check out this work. Check out The Feminist on need, Cell Block Y and Initiative Justice and Question Culture. I'm Ethan Lipsitz, and this is Love Extremist Radio. Peace.